Our text this morning comes from Psalm chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knoweth the way of righteousness, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. In our study last time, we introduced seven visions that are revealed in the 14th chapter of the book of Revelation. Now, these seven visions are to be viewed as separate, disconnected events that go back to the beginning of the tribulation and then move forward through that seven-year period in uh, what we see set forth as an outline for that seven-year period of time. The seven visions, we identified the Lamb and a remnant were seen on Mount Zion. Secondly was an evangelizing angel. And thirdly, an introduction to the fall of Babylon. The fourth vision is a condemnation for those who take the mark of the beast. The fifth vision deals with the patience of the saints. The sixth deals with the reaping of the earth. And the final one is the judgment of the apostate vine. Those seven visions are briefly presented to us in Revelation chapter 14. Now we, in our study last time, examined the first two of those visions. We saw the Lamb and a remnant on Mount Zion worshiping God. And then in the second vision, we saw the supernatural evangelist that God sent, is going to be sending, but he presented that in a vision uh, in the account that John received the evangelizing angel is going to be evangelization by celestial being itself, himself. And um, the world has seen little of that. In the Old Testament days, we have angels ministering to various prophets and other individuals and their circumstances and situations. But this is going to be an evangelizing angel, and we reviewed that in our study last time. The 
study today then takes us to the third vision. And um, my intent as I put this together this week and trying to prepare how best to present it, uh, it looks like we really need to look at these three visions together. The third vision, the fourth vision, and the fifth vision to get a brief overview of what is being presented. And that's all really that we get from the 14th chapter of Revelation, his brief overview. And uh, we're going to be filling in the details for each of these as we move then through the rest of the book of Revelation. In this third vision, we're given an introduction to the fall of Babylon. We pick up at verse 8 of chapter 14. And there followed another angel, other than the evangelizing angel. There followed another angel saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. That great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The announcement during the tribulation that Babylon is fallen is the announcement made by this angel, and it's unrelated to the preceding angel, where there is the offer of grace salvation by the evangelizing angel, this angel offers no grace, but rather it is an announcement of judgment and uh, that swiftly carried out by God. In broad outlines, this message then is one of the declaration of the fall of Babylon the Great which is described in the Scripture as having seduced all the nations with her immorality. Now, harmonizing with many of the Old Testament passages, we're able then to transfer this figure of physical uncleanness to that of a spiritual abandonment of God going into idolatry. And Jeremiah uh, I have said from time to time in our group uh, is one of the most important books of the Old Testament as it relates to us today because we live in such a parallel time as the nation Israel lived in during the days of Jeremiah. And it's been my intent that we might begin a a verse-by-verse through uh, Jeremiah but so far haven't fit that. God hasn't fit that into my schedule. And, uh, but we are certainly introduced to things uh, that are found in Jeremiah and Isaiah because of the parallel. And then because in that parallel, they were speaking not only in their day, but that which is to come in the tribulational event. And so in Jeremiah 51.8, we see a parallel uh, to this as well. Now, Bible interpreters differ on the identity of Babylon. There's a general consensus that the Babylon that is introduced here, and we'll be getting more detail in chapter 17 and chapter 18, 
concerning it, but uh, there is the identification then uh, of uh, that Babylon in greater detail for us. Some suggest that the fall of Rome is what is being announced by this angel. There are others that believe that it's a reference to the mystic Babylon. Uh, as, as a matter of fact, a huge system of papal uh, and spiritual adultery and, and corruption that permeates the religious atmosphere of the world, of the whole world, uh, from the beginning of time until uh, the tribulational period uh, is seems certainly to be a parallel that we can focus upon. Those who are identified as preterists, now preterist is a theological term that's used to identify those who interpret the book of Revelation as being historical. They believe everything in the book of Revelation has been fulfilled except for the second advent of Christ. And uh, you might raise an eyebrow that there would be those that believe that, but there is a large host of evangelical Christians. I started to say Christians and creatures came out. But that's a combination between Christians and preachers. But uh, there's there's a large group of preterists uh, that that are on the airwaves today who believe that everything that we're dealing with in Revelation was fulfilled in the first uh, few years following the ascension of Christ. Other historical interpreters then uh, see this as a reference to the fall uh, of, of papal Rome, uh, the religious organization that's headquartered, the Vatican and all that that's headquartered there in Rome. On the other hand, the futurists view it as a reference to the capital of the Antichrist that is yet to come. And uh, either uh, some would say that's going to be Rome and others would say it's going to be Jerusalem. So Babylon is made up of the entire anti-Christian empire throughout the whole New Testament era. Both pagans and also papal Rome would be included in that, but it wouldn't be just limited to them. Now since the mention of Babylon is admittedly uh, in anticipation here, though it sounds like it's past tense, is fallen, is fallen. But that's a prophetic perfect, and we will see that the events when we get to chapters 17 and 18, and we get more detail on that, uh, begin to fit in uh, better, and we get a little clarity in our understanding. So it's a preliminary announcement of what is going to come to pass in the final overthrow of the pseudo-religious system that is really going to arrive uh, in power uh, during the tribulational period. Now, last week I gave out that current event 
uh, we're at the Commonwealth Games in on July 28th this year at the Commonwealth Games uh, in England that they wheeled out a giant image of the god Baal and they bowed down before it, those that were participating in the dance and in the the opening ceremonies bowed down and worshipped uh, that uh, image, uh, which is a replica of the image of Baal from the Old Testament. One of the images, there are a number of ways the uh, false god Baal was presented. Uh, but we saw that just this last month with 78 nations in attending. And... Uh, so we we understand this whole system of religion is going to change pretty quickly, and I believe that uh, the trigger point for that will will finally be the rapture of the church. Uh, the spirit through the church today limits that which is going on. But the term Babylon goes all the way back to its original mention in Scripture. Remember if if we want to understand Bible symbolism and uh, to understand the various symbols that are used, we need to go back to the first usage of that in Scripture and begin to define it. And so we'd have to go back to Genesis here. In Genesis chapter 10, verses 8 through 10, it is written, And Cush begot Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord, and wherefore it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. At the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, and Eric, and Akkad, and Calneh in the land of Shinar. And then in chapter 11, beginning at verse 1, And the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. And it came to pass... As they journeyed from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. And they said one to another, Go to, let us make brick and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone, and slime they had for mortar. And they said, Go to, let us build us a city and a tower, whose top may reach unto heaven, and let us make us a name lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man builded. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is as one, and they have all one language. And this they began to do, and now nothing will be restrained from them that they have imagined to do. Go to down, go to, let us go down and there confound their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth, and they left off to build the city. Therefore is the name of it called Babel, because there the Lord did confound the language of all the earth, and from thence did the Lord God scatter them abroad upon the face of the earth. So Babylon became the first great Gentile world power that oppressed uh, 
of the nations of the earth. It was based upon pride and idolatry, and it is representative then in Scripture of all that is apostate. And wherever you find the word Babylon, uh, you will find a reference in that nature. Even when we get to the nation of Babylon under the Babylonian Chaldean uh, Empire bondage period, we see how that plays out. The announcement that we have Babylon is fallen is fallen is repeated. The word fallen is repeated indicating that she's going to receive a double portion of God's judgment at that appointed time. The certainty of her coming judgment is as though it had already taken place with the prophetic perfect tense used is fallen, is fallen, indicating uh, what seems to be having already occurred, but prophetically we understand then it relates then to the certainty that though it has not yet occurred, it is certain that it will because God has ordained it. And what's the reason for the fall of Babylon here in Revelation? It says, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. So it's the peak of religious corruption. (coughs) Multitudes are taken in by it. And Jeremiah describes Babylon's condition and the coming judgment, not only in Babylon in his day, but Babylon in Bible prophecy. Jeremiah chapter 50 verse 38 uh, I mentioned earlier says, For it is the land of graven images, and they are mad upon their idols. In chapter 51 verses 7 and 8, Babylon hath been a golden cup in the Lord's hand that made all the earth drunken. The nations have drunken of her wine, therefore the nations are mad. Babylon is suddenly fallen and destroyed. Howl for her. Take balm for her pain, if so be that she may be healed. The near viewpoint of that, of course, related to the Babylonian attack on finally destruction of Jerusalem and the taking of the children of Israel into the land of Babylon. But the the far view of that reached way beyond what occurred in that day and goes to uh, harmonize with what we find in Revelation. Isaiah also in chapter 21 verse 9 says, And behold, there cometh a chariot of men with a couple of horsemen. And he answered and said, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, and all the graven images of her God he hath broken Unto the ground. This passage is prophetic, reaching across the span of time and going all the way to the tribulational events that we are recording here. Now, the reason for Babylon's fall then is evident in the last day, the harlot church will form an alliance with the political leaders of the tribulation and they will be effective in seducing the whole world. This unholy 
alliance, what we, I have referred to as the unholy trinity, uh, then will form a super church and Rome will take the lead in that as we're going to see in our further study. That's fair warning that whatever seduces the affections of the church away from the Lord Jesus Christ is going to experience the mighty wrath of God. And so we need to exercise caution concerning who we're affiliated with, and especially in the word church as it's used in our society today. We need to understand what it is that we're aligning ourselves with. So a brief vision in which we have this profound statement, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, and we do not deal with that further until we get over to the 17th and the 18th chapters of Revelation. Because we're looking at an outline, remember, as it's presented in seven brief visions that John receives. The fourth vision is the condemnation then of those who take the mark of the beast. Verses 9 through 11 of our 14th chapter in Revelation. The third angel followed them saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast and his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wrath of God which is poured out without without mixture into the cup of indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever. They have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image, and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. They have no rest day or night. This third angel has a message then that announces perpetual judgment. Both verses 9 and 11 designate the objects of the divine visitation to be upon the worshippers of the beast and of his image and those who receive his mark. The judgment that is pictured here is horrendous. Uh, it will be the intoxication with the unmitigated wine of the wrath of God in torment, and that torment's going to occur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb and it's going to be unceasing restlessness, eternal torment that is in view here. Now those who teach the unrepentant, wicked, are all going to finally realize their folly and uh, be entered into the eternal kingdom of God uh, have absolutely no explanation for this particular verse. And when confronted with this verse, they simply say, well, that's one of those things we can't account for. Now, one of the true tests of any doctrine that we hold is a harmony of Scripture. 
And if it doesn't harmonize with the rest of the Word of God, then we need not to embrace it as a guideline for us as well. But this, the words that are used here in the New Testament for the uh, eternalness of God uh, is Ais Oanus Ionon, and it means unto into the age of the ages. That's the word that is generally translated in your Bible, um, eternity or eternal, uh, as it relates to God. So I know there's a lot of, of concern on the part of individuals, especially Christians uh, today, that what if we take the mark of the beast not knowing it's the mark of the beast? What if, uh, what if it is a chip that's inserted uh, in our body uh, for identification or protection or whatever, and we take that not not realizing it's the mark of the beast. Well, God is a just God, and He's not going to allow that situation to occur where we accidentally stumble into it. This is with a clear understanding uh, the identification of the mark of the beast is with the worship of the beast. And of course, being born again and part of the church age, uh, we have no fear uh, as it relates to that uh, because that pressure is only going to come at the uh, during the tribulational period. And apparently the enforcement of this during the last three and a half years. So John observes here another angel that makes the announcement that those that worship the beast are in condemnation. They are going to drink the wrath of God, the cup of the wrath of God. You remember Jesus, in speaking of his death, spoke of the cup that he must drink. He drank the cup of our wrath on our behalf. But for those who do not accept by grace through faith in Jesus Christ that offer, then they must drink their own cup. And we have references in the Word of God relative to that. Here it says, The same shall drink of the of the vine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without measure into the cup of his indignation, and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever, and they have no rest day nor night, who worship the beast and his image, and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. So the Bible provides some very strong indications about the lake of fire and brimstone. Uh, a brief preview uh, of that was seen in the destruction of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. We have the destructions of fire and brimstone uh, that is brought in that account. Back in Genesis chapter 19, if you want kind of a view of of what is going to occur. Uh, chapter 19, verse 23 of Genesis. The sun was risen upon the earth when Lot entered into Zor. 
Then the Lord rained upon Sodom and upon Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the plain and all the inhabitants of the cities and that which which grew up, uh, which, which, excuse me, grew upon the ground. I was looking ahead to see here uh, if there, there are three other cities that were involved in that overthrow. And that statement about overthrew those cities and all the plain, in that plain, uh, as I said, there were five cities uh, that were destroyed. Sodom and Gomorrah are, of course, the more common ones uh, that we have referenced at this point. Look what Jesus said about this in Luke chapter 17, beginning at verse 28. Likewise also, it was, as it was in the days of Lot, they did eat, they drink, they bought, they sold, they planted, they builded. But the same day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them. Even thus shall it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. In that day, he which shall be upon the housetop and his stuff in the house, let him not come down to take it away. And he that is in the field, let him likewise not return back. Remember Lot's wife, whosoever will seek his life shall lose it, and whosoever shall lose his life shall preserve it. I tell you in that night that there shall be two men in one bed, the one shall be taken, the other left. Two women shall be grinding together, the one shall be taken and the other left. Two men shall be in the field, the one shall be taken and the other left. A lot of church folks that people that are going to church today who do not believe in hell, in the lake of fire and brimstone, or believe in the judgment of God. They want to focus upon the love of God and not the righteousness and the judgment of God as well. God hates wickedness and it is going to be dealt with in Psalm 45, 7. Thou lovest righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God thy God hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. In Hebrews chapter 1. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of thine hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest. They shall all wax old as doth a garment, and as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and and thy years fail not. Fire and brimstones mentioned then here in Revelation 14, and it's used in other passages in Revelation as a reference to the lake of fire and brimstone. The difference between hell and the lake of fire and brimstone needs to be mentioned. 
uh, just quickly this morning in passing. The word hell is translated from the Hebrew word Sheol. It means the abode of the dead in the heart of the earth. The word hell in the New Testament is translated from the Greek word Hades. It means the abode of the dead in the heart of the earth. These are not to be confused with the lake of fire and brimstone. There's a third area in the heart of the earth that's described in Scripture. It's called the bottomless pit. It's called the abyss. It's called the the bottomless pit, the abyss, uh, the prison. The word prison is an English translation that's used. That refers to the area uh, where the angels which cohabited with women during the pre-Noahic flood and sought to infiltrate the human race with angelic life, thus to defeat the seed of the woman from being able to triumph over Satan, they are incarcerated there now. That's the place where Satan will be bound in the thousand-year millennium. It's called the bottomless pit or the abyss and is referred to as as Tartarus the prison because that's where the incarcerated angels are now. Hades then identifies those two areas uh, where unbelievers go and where believers went prior to the resurrection and ascension of Christ. Believers went to Hades. They went to an area of Hades called Paradise or Abraham's Bosom. Unbelievers who died during that period of time went to Hades or Sheol, that abode of the dead in the heart of the earth, but they went to the compartment known as Torments. At the resurrection and ascension of Christ, when he ascended, he took paradise, Abraham's bosom, out of Hades and took it in to heaven. For a believer that dies now following the ascension of Christ, there is no abode in the heart of the earth. It is a transition into the kingdom of God where paradise or Abraham's bosom is located now. For an unbeliever who dies, Their soul is taken to Hades, Sheol, the abode of the dead in the heart of the earth, in that area called torments, where they are held until, as we get further in the book of Revelation, we see the final judgment when they are brought before the great white throne judgment of God. So when we speak of hell, Uh, We need to define whether we're referring to Gehenna, the lake of fire and brimstone, or whether we're referring to Hades, Sheol, the abode of the dead in the heart of the earth. The lake of fire and brimstone is referenced a number of times then in the book of Revelation. In chapter 19, verse 20, And the beast was taken with him, speaking of uh, the false prophet, uh, that had wrought miracles before him, uh, with which he deceived them, and 
and uh, that had received the mark of the beast and them that worshipped his image, these both were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. The dictator of the revived Roman Empire, the first beast out of the sea, and the false prophet, the second beast out of the land, were thrown in. This is at the second advent of Christ to the earth to set up his millennial kingdom. These are cast into the lake of fire and brimstone. Revelation 20 verse 10, And the devil that deceived them, and this is after the thousand year millennial reign, the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. In Revelation 21 verse 8, But the fearful and the unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake of fire, which the, the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. That's all unbelievers from Hades, from the beginning of time, uh, to the end of time, that will be cast into the lake of fire and brimstone as well. Now remember, John is writing as it's revealed to him by the Lord Jesus Christ and as he receives it from God. Look at Isaiah 34, beginning at verse 8. For it is the day of the Lord's vengeance and the year of recompenses for the controversy of Zion, and the screams thereof shall be turned into pitch, and the dust thereof into brimstone, and the land thereof shall become burning pitch. And it shall not be quenched, night nor day, the smoke thereof shall go up forever from generation to generation, it shall lie waste, none shall pass through it forever and ever. So the world is about to drink out of the cup of God's wrath. Isaiah 51, 17, Awake, awake, stand up, O Jerusalem, which hath drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of his fury. Thou hast drunken the dregs of the cup of trembling and rained them out. Jeremiah speaks in 49, verse 12, For thus saith the Lord, Behold, they whose judgment was not to drink of the cup have assuredly drunken, and thou art, and art thou he which shall altogether go unpunished? Thou shalt not go unpunished, but thou shalt surely drink of the cup of it. Another in Psalm chapter 78 verse 8, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup and a, and the wine is red, and it is full of mixture, and he poureth out of the same, but the dregs thereof, all of the wicked of the earth, shall wring them out and drink them. So a brief view of what's going to occur then with those who take the mark of the beast and those who worship him. The fifth vision is the opposite of that view 
as it shows us the patience of the saints that are to be uh, that's to be practiced during this period of tribulation. Verse uh, back to the fourteenth chapter of Revelation, verse twelve and thirteen. Here is the patient uh, patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Right blessed are the dead which die in the Lord for henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, and their works do follow after them. Now we need to remember <clears throat> that not all of the believers in the tribulational period are going to share in the protection the 144,000 evangelists. Uh, they were the ones that were sealed and they were sealed to protect them from dying. But their converts, there will be those who will respond to the gospel during the tribulational period and many will suffer martyrdom uh, during that period of time. And though, although it's always blessed to die in Christ, comparing uh, Philippians and Second Corinthians, it will be especially true during that tribulational period. Paul said for him to live was Christ, but to die was profit. That will become the cry of those true believers during the tribulational period those who have been converted, it will be far more preferable to die than to experience the persecution and the affliction that is going to be ministered to those who do not take the mark of the beast and who identify with Christ. So there's going to be a large number that will refuse to take the mark, that will refuse to worship Him, and they will be killed. And so this brief view is an encouragement to them. And uh, the word patience is translated from the Greek word hupomone, and it means to abide under circumstances in a state of contentment. Not just to abide under it, but to be content in the midst of it. And as I said, Paul's statement is far better to die and be with Christ than to experience what they are going to be experiencing during that seven-year period. Romans chapter 5, verses 3 and 4 says, But we glory in tribulation, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. James writing says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience, but let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. So here we have a reference to those that in the Revelation account that refused to take the mark of the beast and uh, they need to rely upon that command to develop patience 
to develop a state of contentment no matter what their circumstances might be and uh, the identification of dying uh, being preferable uh, to uh, being tormented during that period of time. Back in Revelation 13.10, we read, He leadeth into captivity. He that leadeth into captivity shall go into captivity. He that killeth with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. So we have a reference in Revelation 13 for to the statement here in Revelation 14 of reference to the patience of the saints. Now some believe that this is an instruction to the tribulational saints to not resist but simply become passive and allow themselves to be killed or allow themselves to be tormented and persecuted. Now while it's evident that resistance is going to do little good uh, during that day. We have some scripture references that, although given to the church, might establish for us at least the character of God and His attitude toward these things. This will be, remember, the completion of the Jewish administration And uh, we don't have any specific instructions that are given as to whether they should resist or whether they should passively submit. They're certainly not to submit to the orders uh, and to the requirement, but to not resist physically. The principle of resistance against the devil is taught in the Bible and certainly prominent in the church age. In James chapter 4 verse 7, Submit yourselves therefore to God and resist the devil, and he will flee from you. In First Peter 5 verses 8 and 9, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil as a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may destroy, whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions or accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. In Matthew, however, chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, beginning at verse 39, Jesus said, But I say unto you that you resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on the right hand of right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at law and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee turn not away. However, in Luke chapter 22, beginning at verse uh, 35, And he said unto them, When I sent you, I sent you without purse and script and shoes. Lack you anything? And they said nothing. Then said he unto them, But now he that hath the purse, let him take it. And likewise his script. And he that hath no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. 
And yet, <laughs> that very night, when Peter attempted to use his sword to defend Christ, he was told by the Lord to put away his sword. In John's account in chapter 18, beginning at verse 10, it says, Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and smote the high priest of servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Then said Jesus unto Peter, Put up thy sword into the sheath. The cup which my father hath given to me, shall I not drink of it? Harmony of Scripture. When it seems like we have conflict, we have to look for harmony. And there are a number of things, of course, that uh, relate to that. And, and that harmonizing must be within the dispensational uh, outline that God has established. Uh, he established that for uh, the children of Israel under the Mosaic law, specific commands that we no longer are obligated to, and that should we perform would actually break our fellowship with Him because uh, the sacrifices were to show the uh, death and resurrection of Christ. And in Hebrews, we're told that some of those Jews who had accepted Christ as their Savior were going back to the temple and they were offering sacrifice. And every time they did, they were crucifying Christ again. And uh, so the writer of Hebrews says it's impossible to restore them into fellowship with God as long as they keep doing that. For that was all fulfilled with Christ. Well, it's not all that simple when we look at the total uh, prospect of Scripture and the various instructions and commands that are given. I think it is worthy to note that when Jesus told Peter to put his sword away, he did not say, he who lives by the sword shall perish by the sword. He had made that statement in the Sermon on the Mount. And in the Sermon on the Mount, we have an introduction to the principles of the kingdom of God. Uh, A a lot of churches and a lot of uh, Christians want to practice the things that are found in the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount was much like the law. It was designed to show us the inability of man to conform and therefore the need for the grace of God to be given and the provision then by faith in Jesus Christ to be given. Jesus simply told Peter, put away your sword. Should I not drink of the cup of wrath that the Father has for me? There's a time and a place as Scripture balances itself out. And uh, the the fact that there is no specific instruction given, um, we're not going to be here during that period of time. Were we going to be here during that period of time? I'm sure there would have been some instruction set forth for us. And so we must harmonize and balance uh, the very principles of God. I um, I 
represented a couple of my students in a court of law one time uh, when I was head to Bible College and Seminary in Southern California, a young man who was the minister of youth uh, at a church uh, in Ventura uh, had uh, defended his wife uh, from a physical attack. And uh, uh, the district deputy district attorney pressed charges against him for uh, the beating that he applied. He was fresh out of the army, so was his wife. Uh, they, they were newlyweds when they came to the school there. They were both fitness folks, uh, and uh, both of them were quite fit. But uh, when, when the thing went to court, it was a hung jury, they had asked me if I would go to court and be a character witness. Well, at that time, I had known them uh, only about two months. And uh, I said, well, I'm, I'm willing to go and give what character witness I can give, but it wouldn't have much validity uh, at this particular point. Uh, but uh, the the... Deputy District Attorney decided to try it again after the hung jury, and so it was a year later. And uh, when it went back to trial, and they asked me then if I would go, and I, I went. And uh, the the prosecutor, the District Attorney, uh, I, I want to say deputy because the the District Attorney was a Christian, a believer, but. Uh, it was evident to me that the deputy district attorney was not, as he tried this, he wanted to make an example out of this youth minister that had physically uh, sent this guy to the hospital. And during uh, the, the course of testimony, he said, haven't you taught this young man the Bible says to turn the other cheek? And I said, yes, but also have taught this young man the responsibility that he has to defend his wife and it was the same God who, uh, the, the same uh, writer who said, turn the other cheek, that later said, I'm not going to be with you now. I'm going to be leaving you to go to heaven. And so if you don't have a sword, buy one. Sell your coat and buy one. He kind of flipped out at that particular point. And he said to me, if you thought I was threatening your wife's life, would you shoot me in the face with a pistol, with a gun? And I said, yes, sir. If I thought you were threatening my wife's life, I'd shoot you in the face with a gun. Which, when I thought about it, was not true. I'd have shot him in the heart, not in the face. But the there's a balance. We have to balance Scripture. And he said to me, have you seen what your student did to this man? And uh, I said, no, I'm not. And he said, well, uh, he said, show, show the witness the pictures. So I looked at the pictures and he said, what do you think? And I said, well, you know, I only have one side of the story. They would not let me sit in the courtroom during the trial to hear the other side. I could only go in to give my testimony of character for him. And I said, I only have heard one side of the story. I'm sure there too. But if the side I heard is correct, I'd say this guy got off easy. 
there is a balance that we have to find. And it's not always in red and black and uh, print for us to be able to understand what that balance is. And uh, we don't have to trouble ourselves too much with this situation, but we're not going to be here during it. But there, we're going to be here during some of the preliminaries, it appears, especially as we see things escalating so quickly here in our own nation. But uh, uh, God has given us a responsibility of self-defense. Um, we're not given any direct statement to those during the tribulation as to their response. There's a balance that has to be found there. The beast is going to kill them, according to the scripture, anyway. They're going to be put to death. So you do, do you just passively? Well, I guess that depends on our makeup and the circumstances and the situation at that particular time. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse eight says, we have confidence, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. In Philippians, Paul wrote, For I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. So, for the tribulational saints, it certainly will be far better to be dead during that period of time. Revelation chapter 20, verse 12 says, Behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to give to every man accordingly as his work shall be. What a contrast in eternity between those who are followers of the beast and those who are followers of Christ. Revelation 14.11 then said, And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever. They have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. Judgment is on its way. The directive and the permissive will of God is going to be removed. And the overruling will of God is going to be applied. And the lake of fire and brimstone are a reality. The current events that we see taking place today declare that the day of Christ's coming for the rapture of the church must be soon. The circumstances that confront society reveal the prepping of the stage. The actors are busying themselves with rehearsal and putting on their costumes the structure for the tribulation is being established quickly. It makes you wonder, cannot they smell the smoke or the stench of burning flesh and repent? And yet, we're told in that day that many of them will curse God and die. Not a far better thing for them, for them, it is death and after death, the judgment. 
We're sojourners. We're foreigners, not living in our own country. We have been gifted by God. Throughout our lives, He opens doors of opportunity for us to minister as representatives of Him in various ways, through various methods, all related to our individual gifting, we are to represent Christ. And that witness should be very visible today in this time when the stage is so prepped. But of course, it all begins in salvation. Bible says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The Bible says, With the heart man believes unto righteousness, but with the mouth confession is made unto salvation for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. A closing hymn. Hymn number 378.